And so in the work that I do, I define uh, student-centered uh, practices and pedagogy based in uh, the motivational framework called self-determination theory. Um, and what that means is that we focus on three basic psychological needs. If I can really boil it down to what I do to define student-centered pedagogy is to focus on students' needs and the three are autonomy, uh, competence, and uh, relatedness. Welcome to Innovating Together, a podcast produced by the University Innovation Alliance. This is the podcast for busy people in higher education who are looking for the best ideas, inspiration, and leaders to help you improve student success. I'm your host, Bridget Burns. Welcome. Today, we're having an episode of Scholarship to Practice. And as an administrator, I don't know about you, but for me, I've been part of far too many conversations where I hear things like, if only we knew, or I wonder if, and later on, I find out that most of those topics, there's actually relevant research that we could have been drawing upon that already existed. Too often, limited time, capacity, or even academic writing can get in the way. At the UIA, we know that we need to bridge that gap between scholarship and practice if we're going to stand a chance to improve student success. We all need to be working together, leveraging research in the field and identifying where we need more research to support greater innovation in higher ed. So this show is designed to help bridge that gap by elevating relevant research we all could be using in our daily lives in a short and conversational format. Welcome to Scholarship to Practice. I'm Dr. Derek Tillman Kelly with the University Innovation Alliance, and I'm delighted to co-host this episode of Scholarship to Practice. And so today we're joined by Dr. Chantel Levesque Bristol of Purdue University. Um, Dr. Chantel leads Purdue Center for Instructional Excellence and has a primary interest in teaching and learning, motivation, educational psychology, faculty development, and institutional change all with the lens of student-centered pedagogy. So Dr. Levette Bristol, welcome to Scholarship to Practice. Thank you so much, Bridget and Derek. I'm so happy to be here for the opportunity. This is great. Well, we're delighted to have you. And we always start with just kind of a conversational uh, person on the street you run into. How do you introduce yourself to, if it was to either a family member or someone in an elevator so that people understand kind of where you sit in the world, the kinds of things that you research and when people should try and call you? Yeah, well, that's a great question, um, and I try to keep it simple when I talk to you know people about what I do because it's so complex to try to understand you know motivation. But what I try to tell people is that I research motivation. That's my research area, and most of the applications are in the domain of education. Um, and what we do uh, is that I work with instructors, um, whether they're faculty, tenure track faculty, or graduate students. Um, and really help them create environments that are positive for students, uh, engaging, and what I call autonomy supportive. Uh, and what that means is that the faculty then create these environments that help all students be you know, more productive, uh, more engaged, but also uh, be happier and have higher well-being as they're um, engaging into this educational process. And that's what I do uh, with my team at Purdue. This is what I've done uh, all throughout my career with my research. And uh, we've worked with hundreds of instructors implementing these strategies into their courses to help all students. That's great, Chantel. And so we know that a lot of your work, as I mentioned in your introduction, focuses on being student-centered. 
And I think in the work that Bridget and I do, most people think that their work is student-centered. What questions do you think one should consider to determine if they're actually student-centered versus, you know, they think about students? Yeah, great question. So in the work that I do, I define uh, student-centered uh, practices and pedagogy based in uh, the motivational framework called self-determination theory. Um, and what that means is that we focus on three basic psychological needs. If I can really boil it down to what I do to define student-centered pedagogy is to focus on students' needs and the three are autonomy, uh, competence, and uh, relatedness. And that's how we know, that's the questions that we ask literally to the students in surveys, but also through our observation. And those are the questions we ask the faculty and the instructors that we work with when we're asking them to think about student-centered pedagogy. So I wanna just spend a little bit of time defining what these terms mean, because we hear a lot about competence in higher education. This one is, is pretty obvious, uh, and I think that often we focus too much on competence, the exclusion of the other two, but competence is about you know building mastery and skills, what we kind of do in education naturally, right? That, that's what we go to, we think about. But we often forget about relatedness and autonomy. And relatedness here, we mean connections with uh, people, uh, the students with the other students, the students with the instructors, and coming out of you know COVID, uh, that was clearly very important to really understand um, how students and people learn. So that's clearly very important, but also autonomy. And this one, autonomy needs a little bit of context. Autonomy means choices and option. Uh, it doesn't mean doing whatever you want to do or free for all or chaos. Um, I, I often refer to it as meaning choice, agency, options within a context. And the context is defined by the instructors. Of course, you know, there's a, a topic and things that learning outcomes you want to achieve. But within that, uh, giving students the opportunity for choice as an option um, is really important. So just to uh, to go back to, um, you know, in education, how can you really, as an instructor, think about, like, am, am I doing this? Um, it can take on different um, flavor. It can look very different in a classroom. But what we call autonomy supportive environments, um, we'll see instructors providing you know, choices and option, and it could be uh, in presentation topics. It could be something very simple. It could also be, would you like to express your knowledge in an exam versus a, a project? Uh, in some cases, it could even be that the instructors are going to allow students, invite students to create questions for an exam, which then get translated into a study guide that they will be uh, using to, to study. So, you know, in all of this, the students are very engaged, right? It's about listening and taking students' perspective, which is our other uh, concept that we, we look for, um, asking questions and being willing to stop and really listen and take that feedback into consideration and even change courses or uh, change like sort of the, the topics that we're covering in the course or the examples that we're using. Um, it's allowing for exploration and experimentation in instead of simply just providing the answer, like a very cookbook recipe. Here's how it works. Here are the steps. Boom, here's the answer. It's allowing students to, to explore and ask questions and not know right away, right? When we talk about competence also, it's talking about are you scaffolding the learning activities that you're providing to the students so that they can demonstrate their knowledge, but also have the opportunity to try, fail, 
get some feedback. So the other thing we look for is really for informational feedback, right? So where did I go wrong? Um, how can I improve? And what did I do well? And then giving an opportunity for students to try again and, and continue to learn. And all of these uh, things that we, we look for uh, really build and, and contribute to satisfy the basic needs of, of all three, right? Autonomy, competence, and relatedness. Because in doing that, the students really feel like they're engaged in that process. Uh, as they're building their mastery and their competence. And they, they, they really feel like the instructor is coming alongside them on their journey to learning, right? It's not something that I have the knowledge here and let me put you to the test and you get one try and if you fail, um, too bad, you're done. Uh, but it's, it's you're coming alongside in that journey. So those are some of the examples that I can provide and, and things that, that we look for when we talk about student-centered learning. So those are positive ways to try and move toward it. Um, and I, I do agree with Derek, like everyone says, oh, I'm, we're student-centered. Everything what we do is student-centered. But I'm just wondering if you have any tactical ways that people can know if they are not. Um, if there are any tells, if there are any ways that someone can self-diagnose, if they look at their curriculum, um, or they might be able to you know, see that they've kind of misread what they thought was student-centered? Yeah, no, great question. And uh, it's almost like the, the, the dark side of uh, education here or the dark side of psychology. And one thing that I, I'd like to point out, it's, it's much more, it's very difficult to be autonomy supportive, right? It's simple in principle, right? What I told you is very simple, but it's difficult to do so because it requires more time, it requires more energy. So the flip side of that, what is not so positive is what I would call these controlling practices. And unfortunately, a lot of what we do in education, higher education and otherwise, even from very early on, is what I would consider controlling practices. Uh, the, the policies that are set up and the way that we set up our course to be more efficient, for example, um, in the name of efficiency or fairness, sometimes we think it's going to be fair or more equitable are really not fair or equitable practices or controlling. Uh, and, and I can give you example from starting very early on rewards, gold stars, awards that really pit individuals against each other. And this starts very early on, right? In, in K through 12, um, you're compared to others and Yes, the grading system would fall into that category of, of students competing for grades, especially if the grading is done on a curve, right? And those are things that we see often We're like, well, yeah, of course, I'm assessing my, my students and they get a grade at the end. But especially when we're uh, thinking about grades on a curve and pitting students against each other, we're, we're, we're thinking of A's as sort of a limited resource, right? We're competing for the A's as if there's a limited knowledge base and mastery is, is limited when in fact, you know, it, it's not. But those, um, especially like in STEM, if we're thinking about STEM disciplines, uh, very competitive disciplines where um, the, the grading process and the competition for those A's and those higher grades really create these instances where uh, students don't want to collaborate. They don't want to engage in those student-centered practices because it's like, well, if I collaborate with you, I might help you understand something and then you might do better on the test and get my A. Uh, so uh, other examples um, that are things that we do 
naturally or sometimes to be efficient or rigorous are also controlling. So heavy uh, workload, heavy home workload in the sense of being rigorous and the course is hard and we associate hard with learning when in fact it's it's not necessarily associated with learning. Uh, points off for lateness or very strict attendance policy, um, for example, or or failure, right? You fail if you provide a wrong answer. We already talked about that with no opportunity for rewriting your work or redoing your work. I mean, how often even in our practices do we need to collaborate with others or look up the information or not get it right the first time, right? So, and, and we think it, you know, it's normal. We develop, we, we continue to learn, but somehow in higher education, in certain fields especially, it's like, you know, you, you didn't get it right the first time, therefore you're not moving on or it has a big impact on your grade. Uh, so all of these could be considered uh, controlling, but other things as well is that sometimes we, we implement or we try to implement practices that are considered student-centered, like group work, for example, and we do it poorly. Uh, or or we do it without really thinking about why we're doing the group work. And, and a caveat for all this and for all these, these practices is that we really need to connect it to the learning outcomes. The, the instructors really need to be able to ask themselves a question of why am I doing this, right? What is it that I would like my students to be able to know, do, and appreciate and write these into specific learning outcomes uh, that then your activities are connected to. So a, a bad way of doing group work, for example, is you have an instructor who may think, hey, I've heard about group work and active learning strategies and student-centered is really important. So today I'm gonna do group work. So they walk into the classroom and tell their students, get together, you, 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 and I form a group and talk about the material or the content. Uh, and and that's that can be perceived as very controlling because if you have students who are more introverts, for example, they may not be able to think very clearly on the spot. Uh, others might, but some may not. That's not a very good question either, right? Just talk about the material. So if you don't think about your questions and how those questions are connected to your learning outcomes and what you're trying to accomplish with that particular activity, uh, you're going to miss the mark, right? And that's going to be perceived as something that's the students are going to wonder, why are, we, why are we doing this? What's the assignment? I don't understand. Um, and then for, for some, it's also um, difficult to work in an environment with other people that they don't know. So if you've not prepared the group to work together um, and, and ask them questions, and sometimes the wrong questions, they're not comfortable sharing with others uh, yet or they're, they may be afraid of saying something wrong or making a mistake. So you have to really build toward those student-centered activities. So, um, but in a nutshell, you know, Bridget, to, to kind of go back to the question of like, what are we, can, can, what do we do wrong sometimes? Is that often the things that we don't even think about that are sort of the building blocks of education and how we structure our courses uh, can be perceived as controlling. And we really need to reflect on these practices uh, in a student-centered environment. That's super helpful. And as someone who earned a biology degree in undergrad, grading on the curve was a thing that happened. And it's interesting because I do, I can remember some of the feeling um, that you talked about. And so I'm going to pivot us just a little bit um, because in all of the examples you provided, both positive and negative, there felt like there needed to be an intentionality um, in the way that folks do this work. And so when I hear you talking about 
student-centered pedagogy, it's clear that we want this because it might um, increase student success. The interesting part, though, is the ways that you talked about it suggested to me that there might be a particular benefit for marginalized or minoritized student populations. And so I'm wondering if you can articulate any examples that might not feel like teaching, um, but that would demonstrate a student-centered mindset or not, for example. Yeah, oh, great question, Derek. And I really like that you're using the word mindset. I think that's uh, you know critical um, because it's really about a mindset shift. Uh, you know, ultimately, even when our work is uh, perceived to be about course transformation, right? We're changing these courses to be more student-centered. Uh, the transformation really occurs in the instructors as well, where there's a transformation, there's a mind shift that applies not only for the course that they're teaching, but for all the all that they do that is considered teaching, whether it's in the classroom or or outside of the classroom. And these, so so it's. It is definitely uh, outside of just, you know, the idea of teaching, right? So many of these practices, these mindset shift can be seen as outside of teaching. And yet, you know, these the research shows that these practices, when done well, these student-centered practices are beneficial for all students, but even more so for uh, marginalized population and minoritized students. And here I'm, I'm thinking about this very broadly. And um, I'll give you an example that I think will, will resonate that I hear often, you know, faculty bring to the work that we do and they work with us. They, they'll have a very strict attendance policy. Uh, it's kind of the, the closing the door, right? If you're late uh, to, the, to the classroom, well, the door will be closed. Don't enter because this will be really distracting to other students and it's not fair. You were not there on time, right? So again, there's these issues of fairness or it's distracting me as an instructor. Uh, so the, the door will be closed. And to me, that's that's an example of a, a very controlling practice that can actually is not really tied to learning outcomes. So when I hear that, I ask the faculty, so why is this a practice and how is this tied to your learning outcome? Because if it's not, then I invite the faculty to really think about, um, you know, changing that practice if you can't connect it to an outcome. If you could, then we have a different conversation. But if it can't be connected to a learning outcome, then to me, it's like, why are you doing this? Um, because, you know, closing the door, you may have students who um, are, let's say, needing a friend to uh, drive them to school, right? They don't have a way to get to school and their ride didn't show up that day or their car broke down, right? If you're thinking about students who may not have uh, high social economic status, for example, or um, you are a single mother and, uh, you know, the daycare was closed today and the, the sitter can't come but you know you you figured it out and you made an effort to get to class but you're 10 minutes late and then suddenly that opportunity to learn with others where really you would think that's where the learning outcomes are going to be met through assessment and activity is is really taken away from you because you were late and then i ask uh, when were we late the last time for a meeting or an event, right? We do this all the time, whether it's on Zoom or, I mean, I found that that it happened. We adjusted the time in COVID. We were late for Zoom meetings, although we didn't have to go anywhere because um, we could just, you know, go do that one thing. We were late and somehow after you graduate, you can simply apologize and say, sorry, I was late for the meeting. What did I miss, right? So let's jump into the conversation. So um, to me, making this a difference you know, before graduation, while you're going through school, trying to to do all these hard things uh, that are often 
more difficult for minoritized and marginalized students, um, it, it, you know, and that that can affect them disproportionately. So again, focusing on on the learning outcomes and group work is another good example of this sort of closing the door effect. And it could be it's a sometimes it's a literal door and sometimes it's just a a sort of a metaphorical door. Uh, but there's other practices like this that are very uh, difficult for some students, right? Group work is not something that all students are comfortable with. You have to prepare them and it has to be connected to learning outcomes or uh, speaking up in class may be very difficult for some students, especially in a large uh, classroom. Um, so those are really the, the kinds of things that we need to think about that are beyond the teaching practices per se. Um, Sometimes it's just how do we set up our syllabus? What is the message in the syllabus? Is that an invitation to learn? Or is the syllabus reading more like a, a contract, a 20-page contract with all of the things that could go wrong and all of the things that you should not be doing when learning should be exciting and fun, really, ultimately? And that's really what student-centered practices try to kind of bring back, bring the, the student's perspective uh, so that all students can succeed. That's super helpful. I'm um, so I want to talk about mythology in uh, pedagogy. Uh, the, there seem to be um, not only does ever it seem like everyone talks about that they are a student centered teacher, um, and that and then they will often describe certain practices as being student centered that that you're letting us know are not, and that there's actually a lot more precision to how you actually can can move in that direction but i'm wondering like if there are any myths about student-centered learning that folks should be aware of like i know that you and i had talked in passing about active learning and i um i thought i was really struck by what you had to say there but um could you share just one uh, myth that you think people need to understand about um to, about student-centered learning relative to that yeah, you know, you mentioned active learning uh, in the context of student-centered learning, and quite often the two are equated or talked about in the same paragraph. And it's not that that is wrong, right? Often student-centered practices are uh, active learning, but you you see a lot of sort of confusion in the literature, right? Sometimes active learning practices are associated with higher levels of performance, and other research will show that certain active learning practices, like group work, did, did not lead to higher levels of performance. And in the model that I'm thinking about, when I'm thinking about student-centered practices as meeting the basic psychological needs of autonomy, competence, and relatedness, is that active learning, and that's the myth there, is that active learning does not mean activity. It does not mean chaos in the classroom, right? That's not how I would think or, or diagnose a classroom as being student-centered. If I walk into the classroom and the classroom is loud and there's activity, it's not necessarily active learning because it may not necessarily uh, be student-centered and then meet the basic psychological needs of autonomy, competence, and relatedness. Um, so we talked about group work, for example. That could be a good example. I could walk into a classroom and see group work, but if I assume automatically that that's active learning, um, I may be mistaken because active learning to me really needs to come from uh, the activity sort of within, right? The reflection that the students are doing, there's activity in the engagement, right? And that can be very quiet. It could be a very, it's a very personal experience. And so you can find uh, active learning in very large classrooms. And that's when sometimes technology as a tool become important. So you can think about 
a 500 level classroom and an instructor asking some very good questions connected to the learning outcomes, often very difficult questions, questions you may not have the answers to or nobody has the answers to. And then the students will be using, let's say, a student response system like clickers or at Purdue, we have what we call hot seats, sort of a back channel uh, conversation, uh, instant messaging uh, type of thing where you can comment and like others' comments and um, reflect in, in this way. Um, and it's a, it could be very quiet, but there's active learning going on. So I think one of the myths is that active learning is not activity. It's not chaos, uh, right? So that's uh, sometimes you know misconception. And that uh, active learning can look very different. It can be uh, happening in large lectures. It can be happening in small classrooms. It can look like group work, but it can also look like um, something very quiet. And it can be some very simple strategies as well, right? I'm thinking about uh, a think pair share which you can do with the use of technology in a large classroom. Pose a question, have every student think about uh, their answer to that question, maybe jot something down or use uh, the clicker system to post a comment. Um, then pair with maybe the person right next to you. It doesn't need to be in group pair with the person next to you and discuss um, this answer, uh, for example, or it could be um, also a minute paper, right? At the end of class, really reflect on what's still difficult for you to understand and, and what is clear now from, from the session that we've been through. But it could also be active learning, could also be very um, complex. It could be very complex uh, strategies like team-based learning, for example, uh, uh, or um, something at Purdue that was done actually um, is very clever, it takes a lot of time. You talked about time for uh, student-centered practices, but he uh, actually used this idea of, you know, taking a test, making some mistakes and giving, having the opportunity to rework a problem that you missed. And he call it uh, concept point recovery or CPR. I think it's just beautifully clever right so you're saving the person from this uh bagger but giving them another chance and uh really what's uh very uh interesting here is that he actually uh has the student um meet with them face to face to actually explain they select one answer that they got wrong and they can recover their points, but they have to go and meet with him in his office hours with Jen ties in that relatedness and explain to him uh, that concept. And it's been, we have lots of research on it. It's been extremely powerful. So it could be very complex and time intensive, but it doesn't have to be to build that connection and, and, and relatedness. Great, and we have a live user over on LinkedIn um, loving all the practical examples revealing that you know, not everyone is really student-centered, but they make the point of what's worse is that sometimes policies uh, at the institution are the opposite of student-centered that are present. So um, I'm wondering if you wanted to comment on that, if there are any um, any particular policies that for you are kind of like, oof, we gotta, we gotta get rid of that, or um, even a question that a policy, admi an administrator could ask themselves that would help them understand whether they're really student-centered. Right, and that's a, that's a great point and absolutely correct, right? And I think, uh, for certain departments, uh, and Derek, you mentioned STEM discipline, like your degree in biology, right? Where grading on a curve is is almost like a, a practice that is just accepted. Um, and that is one that in my work at the university, I ask questions often and I push hard on. Um, 
because you think about this as a policy or just like the, the, the grade that you need to be able to enter a certain major. And that is as a policy at, at certain institution or for certain department. Um, and, and then it just, you know, for students, let's say that were not as prepared or did not have the opportunity to go to high school where they had AP credit or that opportunity, right? They may get in, uh, but then they're starting kind of behind the start line because if you got to compete for those A's that are perceived to be limited, uh, you're already behind trying to catch up, which then is just kind of a losing proposition. So I think that one is one that I'm trying to affect now. But um, there's a lot of things with just the questions that are asked on on the admission uh, form, for example, that may be uh, putting some students in some very uncomfortable positions, right? And you think about the climate of the institution uh, that then from even just filling out the form for entrance uh, is perceived to be a controlling practice. So there's lots of those. Uh, unfortunately, um, our system has been built to be efficient, and not really student-centered. Uh, so there's lots of work to do. That's the good news, right? There's lots of work to do. And a, a lot of your work has shown that it's actually possible to make change. So Derek, you want to go ahead? Yeah, and I, I love that you end it with there's lots of work to do. And I imagine that lots of our folks listening or watching um, will say, do I want to do all that work? And so I guess the question really is, are the benefits that for those who are willing to do the work to implement the shift toward a student-centered pedagogy really worth it? Like, yeah, great question. I would say absolutely. Um, and the research really uh, shows it. Uh, not only for students, but for instructors as well. And yeah, there's a lot of work to do. It's hard work, difficult work, but it's also, I would say, heart work. It's something that, you know, being student-centered requires dedication and passion and willingness to even ask the question and confront these practices um, and, and ask the difficult question and accept that it's going to be difficult. But yes, it's absolutely worth it because we see for students, um, you know, that when these environments are created, they do feel the satisfaction of the needs to increase. So it's really about their well-being. So autonomy, competence, relatedness will increase. Their level of self-determined motivation will also uh, increase. And it's important to put that in context with performance. Sometimes, you know, controlling practices and the way that we've done business will lead to good grades. The students, there will be a, a good number of students that will perform well and have good grades. But the psychological tax or the psychological uh, hurt that is done by having to go through these programs with these environments that are highly controlling. Uh, and that's where we see when the basic needs are not met and the motivation is down, right? Performance is high, but I'm depressed, I'm anxious, motivation is down. So we also see those benefits for the students, higher levels of well-being, lower levels of anxiety, uh, better ability to transfer knowledge, to just engage in learning from a, a lifelong learning perspective, but also for the instructors. So uh, the instructors that we work with will report that they enjoy teaching more. They enjoy their teaching practices more. Uh, they're also able to really see that how they assess or actually think about how their assessment is really more connected to learning as opposed to just like here today I'm giving a test. And also they, they see it in their students. They see their students being more engaged. They see their students being more critical thinker and, and better problem solver when you implement those practices. So I think absolutely. Is it easy to do? No. Do you really need to reflect and be intentional and criticize, critique your own practice? Yes, absolutely. 
Great. Okay. So we're going to land the plane. Um, I want to reference your writing because you've done a lot of really groundbreaking research. Part of how we first connected with you was First in the World and your impact study. In your book, um, Student-Centered Pedagogy and Course Transformation at Scale, Facilitating Faculty Agency to Impact Institutional Change. That is a long title, um, but it's a, it's a very accurate title. Um, but you talk about transformation at scale. Uh, what's the most important factor to achieve transformation and institutional change um, in the way, based on your research? Great question. Great way to land the plane. <laughs> um, you know, it's really about the people. And I'm going to go back to kind of what I started with and come full circle. The innovation, which I discuss in the book, is that it's about people focusing on human motivation, um, whether it's with the faculty or the students, right? So in the program that we do in IMPACT, you mentioned IMPACT, we are also student-centered, people-centered with the instructors that we work with. And that's how we sort of enact that mindset shift so they can then do the same thing in their coursework with their students. So it's, it's investing in people. Uh, and the other myth about active learning and something also that I talk about in the book is that it's not about technology or tools or a type of redesign, which has often been uh, the mistake, I think, in, in sort of the past and when we've tried to do this work, is that we, it's, it's not about implementing one technology or one design. Because if you do this, you can't scale it because you're going to have instructors that are going to say, I don't like this technology, this particular redesign, flipping my class, for example, that does not apply to my discipline. I can't do it. Uh, so you can't scale and you can't um, enact the institutional change because it's it's not a common thread. So focusing on the theory and human motivation uh, and talking about those needs of autonomy, competence and relatedness and focusing on this and driving it this way uh, and bringing that question constantly to the focus, uh, that's our commonality. Uh, right? We're not teaching physics or chemistry or psychology or English. We're teaching people about these topics and people are teaching people about these topics. So focusing on our psychological needs and the students' psychological needs is, is the key for that transformation to be scalable uh, and that transformation to be institutional, right? And we do the same thing if we're talking about culture change or organizational change. Um, and, and the work that I do has application beyond pedagogy, right? It has applications also when you recruit faculty, uh, when you retain faculty, uh, when you uh, recruit students and retain students. Um, so that's, that's really the innovation. Again, a simple idea, focus on people, but very difficult to do well, sort of like landing a plane. I'm sure it's very difficult to do well. And that makes complete sense. And we don't want you to leave us without making sure that people can connect with you outside of this conversation, um, because we know they'll have questions. Um, they'll want to learn more about the book. What's the best way to get in touch? So I am uh, connected on LinkedIn. Um, and uh, the book is also um, linked there to my LinkedIn uh, profile. And uh, also, uh, you mentioned the book, it's published by Stylus. So that's another way to access uh, the work that I do, but also email works great. So um, cbristol at purdue.edu. Um, and, uh, and I'm also on Facebook. So other venues or just, um, yeah. So those are the ways to, to reach uh, to reach out. But thank you so much for, uh, for that opportunity.
Well, we're delighted to have had you here on the show and thank you so much for giving us a, a, a lot to chew on in terms of thinking and rethinking how we thought we were doing student-centered pedagogy, um, diagnosing when we actually have it wrong, um, changing perspe perspective about some of the mythology that we need to address in our sector. So that was super helpful. Um, for those at home, if you would like to nominate a scholar or a topic area for future episodes of Scholarship to Practice, please comment below or reach out to myself or actually reach out to Dr. Derek Tumlin Kelly because he's uh, well, he's going to be the one leading on this, um, this, this particular show. But thank you for being here and we can't wait to bring you more conversations that bridge the gap between scholarship and practice. So thank you again, Chantal. This was really wonderful. Thank you to both of you.